want to welcome each and every one of you, uh, especially those who are joining us online. It's a blessing to be here together. I am excited. Um, I don't know about you, but this streak of warm, sunny weather is good to my Filipino blood. Yes, sir. Amen. Now, as someone who grew up in Central California, where, you know, the coldest nights were like 50 degrees, <laughs> I don't know, um, th this, is, this has been a, a nice reprieve. You know, I actually started, we, we dropped off our kids earlier this week uh, to, to school one day. We saw, like, some of the trees were starting to bud, you know, leaves popping out, and the sense of hopefulness, you know, is, is arising. And God is thinking, you know, we're starting to think about, hey, you know what, in our new backyard, why don't we put a couple garden boxes here? You know, what could we do? Maybe we'll go visit uh, Mr. Joe, and, and he can show us how to start some, some seedlings and things like that. Um, and then, you know, I saw something interesting on the internet. It was a little meme that said the 12 seasons of Colorado. Have you, have you seen this before? <laughs> the 12 seasons of Colorado. Anyways, and I was introduced to this simple phrase called fool's spring. Have you heard of that? Fool's spring. It's where you think it's spring, but it's really not spring. Yeah, and, and the, the meme said, you are here. <laughs> out, of all, out of all the, the 12 things, there's like, um, there's summer, and then there's fire, and then there's, there's false fall, and all these things. Yeah, so full spring. And then right after full spring is second winter. And, <laughs> and then there's a, uh, oh man, I forgot what comes after that. It's something about uh, spring of deception. And then there's third winter, and all of these things. Ah. Anyways, I don't want to put I don't want to put a downer <laughs> burst anybody's bubble, but I guess that's the reality of Colorado. I, I have noticed since I think we're we're what five years into being Colorado residents, um, there's a certain level of flexibility that we've had to learn, right? Keeping keeping warm clothes in the car, keeping blankets in the car, things like that. But hey, we may still be far from planting, we may still be far from harvesting around here. But I tell you what, it is always the right time to give attention to a different kind of harvest. You know what I'm talking about? It's always the right time. Why? Because the Lord of that harvest, he is constantly at work. All right. And so we're launching a new series today. We're launching a new series called Lord of the Harvest in which we're going to fix our hearts on him, the Lord of the harvest. And so what I want to invite you to do is go with me to the scripture that was just read. We're going to Matthew chapter 9, the gospel of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. If you're looking on your phone or in your Bible or on your screen, if you're joining us online, wherever you are, go ahead and open up your browser. We're going to Matthew chapter 9, and I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version. We're looking at the Lord of the harvest, how he thinks, how he operates, and what he is instructing us to do today. If you're there, go ahead and say, I'm there. All right. And actually, before we read, let's just pause for yet another word of prayer. God, here we are. And we're just wanting to open up not just a book. We're wanting to open up our hearts. As we open to the pages of Scripture, I ask that the Holy Spirit who inspired men to write these things would also inspire our hearts to receive these things. 
Lord, please instruct us and teach us in the way that we should go. Cause your word to come to life. And like Jesus prayed, sanctify us through your truth, knowing that your word is truth. So we want to receive the living word spoken by the living God. Please translate to our hearts exactly what we need just for today. We pray in Jesus' name. Let everyone say amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 9. And I love this picture, this beautiful picture of the Lord of the harvest. In verse 35, the Bible says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Amen. Man, this is Jesus. And I I don't know if you're, you realize this, but Jesus was a mover, okay? He was someone who got around. And according to this verse, he went to every city and every village. The populated areas, you know, the cities, the metropolises, and then the villages, the tiny little hamlets. That's where he wanted to be. Why? Because that's where people were. Jesus wanted to be where the people, he wanted to be close. He wanted to be with people. And he didn't want anyone to miss out on the blessing of his presence. He didn't want anyone to miss out on the blessing of his closeness. Jesus came close to people. He came close. For what purpose, according to this verse? Why did he go to every city and village? What was he doing there? It says he was teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. That's a beautiful ministry. When you think about it, right? He, he's there to teach. He's coming close to teach. That is to instruct, to shape people's thinking, to get them to, to, to lift up their, their hearts and minds, to have a renewed thought process. He wants to teach them, and he's going to where they are, to their, to their synagogues themselves. But he's not just there to preach. He's also there, I'm sorry, he's not just there to teach. He's also there to preach, which is a little bit different. It's a little bit different. It's not just instructing, discussing, dialoguing, you know, working from, or from, from information to conclusion. He's also there to announce. He's declaring something beautiful. He's heralding the arrival of the kingdom of God. He's not just there to instruct. He's also there to invite. Hey, enter enter the kingdom of God. I, I want you to realize something, that spiritual truth is not just something to learn about. Right. It's something to receive and act upon. Jesus, he's there to teach and to preach. Hey, accept the gospel. Enter the kingdom of heaven. Be part of this heavenly citizenship, which was, by the way, it was much different, a di different perspective of the kingdom than they had in their minds in that time. But there's a third element of Jesus' desire to be close to people. He wasn't just there to teach. He wasn't just there to preach. What else did he do there? He was there to heal. He was there to heal. And I love it. It says healing every sickness and every disease among the people. The word there for heal is, is the word therapeuo. That is, he, he was giving them therapy. He was leading them to healing, wholeness restoration. What was he able to heal? Some sickness, some disease? No, the Bible says every sickness and every disease. It uses two different words, sickness and disease. Sickness referring to those things that were more like chronic conditions, more like incurable things that were just kind of, you know, 
kind of given up hope on. But no, Jesus is there to heal that. And he's there to heal the diseases, the, the ailments, the, the, the things that are of more recent onset. None of these things were outside of the reach of Jesus. Nothing was beyond his healing and restoring power. This is the Lord of the harvest. Ah, and, and it was a holistic ministry, right? Teaching, preaching, healing, a holistic ministry that involved public education, public proclamation, but also that personal touch. And the Lord of the harvest, he came close to communicate. He came close to invite, came close to heal and to make people whole. And I tell you what, if you're looking for a model of ministry, there is no better picture. Jesus teaches, preaches, and heals. And we, as, a, as followers of Christ, we will model our ministry in the same way, not just to help people change their mind about things, but actually give, extend a, a personal healing touch to lift people up, to meet practical needs, and to help people experience wholeness where they have previously experienced brokenness. Which, by the way, you know, the, the uh, health seminar that we had originally planned for tomorrow, April 11, I hope you heard the announcement, it has unfortunately been postponed. Um, you know, you heard the prayer request for Eden Valley. Let's keep them in prayer. Our presenters, we're needing to, to isolate and quarantine and stuff. So we are hoping to plan for a, another date in May. So let's stay tuned for that. Um, but yeah, it's just another way through which we can extend the healing ministry of Christ. Let's keep reading here. In verse 36. The Bible says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then in verse 37, maybe the more familiar part of this passage to us says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful. Maybe those words are a little bit more familiar. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. But what I want us to pause just for today on, is we're, we're going we're gonna to actually spend the next couple of weeks just on this passage alone. But what stood out to me is that in verse 37, the Bible says, then he said to his disciples. In other words, those familiar words, the, the, the familiar red letters that we see in verse 37 and 38, they are in response to something else that happened before. In other words, what Jesus says is actually shaped by what Jesus sees. Uh, yeah, yeah. Did I say that right? What Jesus says is shaped by what he sees. Okay? What Jesus says is shaped by what he sees. So what, pray tell, did he see? What did he see that, that motivated him to then say these things? In verse 36, take a look again. We kind of glossed over it, but go back. Verse 36, but when he saw who? The multitudes. He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Hey, be before we rush to Jesus' prayer, the more familiar things of verse 37 and 38, let's sit and study Jesus' perspective. Did you hear me? Before we rush to the prayer, we need to understand his perspective. What did he truly see? He saw the multitudes, and he was moved with compassion. 
As we look at the perspective of Jesus, I just want to point out a couple of things here, that the perspective of Jesus when he sees the multitudes is a perspective of compassion. It's a perspective of compassion. I love the way that this is phrased here. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Now, I don't know when the last time was you had the opportunity to actually be in a crowd to actually be in a multitude. I know with COVID and stuff, we, we almost turn the other way when there are crowds. We, we, we try to avoid those things. But if you just kind of think about those times when you've been surrounded by lots of people, maybe a downtown metropolis like Denver or something, or, or maybe you went to some large event where there are a lot of people, you're kind of going in and out and rubbing shoulders with people, lots and lots of people. How are you moved when you see multitudes? I remember uh, several years ago when I was in the seminary, we took a weekend away and, and spent some time in Chicago just to explore a little bit. And we, we were staying at a, at a hotel in downtown Chicago. And, um, oh man, I don't know what floor we were on, 14th, 15th floor, whatever it was. But we opened up the window shades in the morning and we, we just saw traffic and it wasn't traffic on the roads, it was traffic on the sidewalks. <laughs> Have you ever seen that before? Lots of people. It wasn't just, you know, lots of cars, it was people just rub. And I just remember just sitting there, you know, having my devotions, and here I was at seminary with classes just kind of instructing and inspiring me. Man, how can we reach the world? How can we, you know, save people's souls? And how can we lead people to a knowledge of Christ? And and here I am just wanting to be effective in ministry. And I looked at these multitudes, and I'll just be honest with you. The feeling that overwhelmed my heart was a feeling of impossibility. Have you ever experienced that? Where you look at people and you have this, this longing for their benefit and blessing, but you just have no idea how. You're even overcome, not just with your own sense of insufficiency, you're even overcome with the sense of impossibility that, that they would never listen, that they would never respond. It's almost really, uh, it, it's, it's a sense of unbelief. That's what it is. I remember being just overcome by this sense, feeling too small to be of any impact. And that's, that's really what happens. When I see multitudes, my default is to feel impossibility. My default is to feel hopelessness. My default is to feel smallness and powerlessness. And in the face of multitudes, if you're like me, you've, you know that feeling of a, a numbing distance that tends to settle in my heart between the hearts that I hope to be a blessing to. But I praise God that when Jesus sees multitudes, he's moved by something completely different. He's moved by something completely different. The word here is he's moved with, what does it say in your Bible? Compassion. compassion. Yeah. He's moved with compassion. Maybe your Bible says pity. When Jesus sees multitudes, he's moved with compassion. And the word here is actually a, a word that refers to someone's innards, their inward parts, the, their spleen, actually. <laughs> it's the word that we get spleen from. Uh, their, their lungs, their liver, their kidneys. Anyways, the, the, the biblical mindset, it really saw the inward person as the seat of someone's emotions. And so really what's going on, Matthew's describing to us that when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was deeply moved emotionally. Jesus literally feels for these people 
at the very core of who he is. Why? Why is he moved with compassion? Why is his heart turned towards them? Why why is it that his, his whole being feels for these people? The rest of the verse says, because they were, what are the next few words in your Bible? They were, mine says, weary and scattered. Mine says they were weary and scattered. Maybe your Bible says uh, they were not weary, but uh, it says they were distressed. Some versions say they were harassed. Actually, the word for weary, it's, a, it's kind of a gruesome word. It, it means to skin something, to flay something. So, so these people that Jesus sees, they're, they're, they're very much annoyed. <laughs> we'll say it that way, okay? They're going through stuff that is extremely painful in life. When, when the Bible says that they were weary and scattered, that word scattered, some, some versions say dispirited. Some versions say helpless. The word is actually referring to something that's being thrown out, tossed away, as if they're of no use anymore. So when Matthew is describing who Jesus sees, these are people who have been thrown off, hurt and harassed by life, cast out by circumstances, and emotionally, they're left on the curb, far from home, without a place to belong, without a sense of direction or a source of hope, without any guide or compass, which is why the next phrase says, they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd, feeling as if no one was caring for them, providing for them when there should have been plenty of support around them. This is who Jesus sees. They're dispirited and helpless. And maybe, maybe today you know people like that. Maybe today you are feeling just like that. And if you've ever been there or if you are there, you know that those who are in that kind of a situation, they're not always the most pleasant people to be around. Why is that? It's it's because hurt people tend to hurt people. Have you ever experienced that? I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't see like I do. That when Jesus sees stories like that, in the sea of faces, he sees stories I imagine that he's already been there with them in the cities and in the villages. He's already been close to them, hearing their stories, ministering to their needs. And as Jesus sees these people, when he sees our shortcomings, your struggles, my dysfunction, our addictions, whatever the case, he does not turn away in disgust. Amen. Amen. Instead, Instead, he sees the heart, he sees the hurt, he sees the whole person, and his entire being is moved toward those with compassion. His entire being is moved toward them. So that, that's why we're talking about when Jesus sees the multitudes, he has a perspective of compassion. But you know what else, how he sees these people? I love what he says in the very next verse. He says, In verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful. You know, Jesus sees completely different. It's not just a perspective of compassion. This is a perspective of hope. This is a perspective of hope. Pay attention again to what he sees. He says, 
The harvest truly is plentiful. In other words, well, let's just stop right here first. The fact that he says truly is plentiful, he's telling us, hey, really pay attention. You might think it's completely different, but no, this is the truth. This is the truth. Whatever he's about to describe here, this is true. This is trustworthy. It's more real than what we may perceive. It's more real than what we may even feel about others. And so what exactly is true? What exactly is so trustworthy about what Jesus is saying here? The harvest truly is plentiful. Did you catch Jesus' redefinition of terms? What Matthew describes as a multitude that's weary, scattered, shepherdless, without direction and compass in life. What Matthew describes as a multitude, Jesus says that's a harvest. He sees a multitude that's messed up, but what he really sees is a harvest. And to me, that rings of hope. Why? Why? Why is that hopeful? Well, one, because harvest communicates something of value. Harvest, it means that this is, this is not just a multitude to turn away from. This is a harvest to be gathered in. This is a harvest to be labored for, to be brought in, to be prized and preserved. What some would be overwhelmed by, what some would, be, would simply just throw out, Jesus says these are people that need to be invested in because he sees in them a plentiful harvest. So what does harvest communicate? It's hopeful because harvest communicates potential, right? Harvest communicates potential. Jesus views the broken not as a bother, but as a blessing. Amen. Amen. He sees them as full of hope and potential. His harvest, by the way, is something that we want to bring in, right? When, when you see your apricots, you know, starting to, to get ripe or whatever, those, those, those red tomatoes in your garden, your salsa garden, whatever, it, when you start seeing, hey, that harvest, I want to bring that in. When Jesus calls this multitude harvest, he sees potential, something we want to bring in, something we don't want to let go to waste, something we actually uh, manipulate our schedules around because we value it. You know, we may be turned off by others' brokenness. We may be turned off by others' blemishes. But the Lord of the harvest turns toward because he sees potential. He sees potential. I mean, just think about one of those stories. We, we brought this up last week. In John chapter 4, you know, the Bible says that um, Jesus was leaving Judea on his way to Galilee. And if you, you know the geography there, he's, he's going north-south. But the, the, the verse there in John chapter 4, I think it's verse 4, maybe 3 or 4, says he needed to go through Samaria. <laughs> and if you know... Uh, any cultural Jew of that time, even though it might be convenient to go through Samaria, you definitely didn't want to go through Samaria. But Jesus says he needed to go through Samaria. Why is that? Because he knew he had a divine appointment. <laughs> he knew he had a divine appointment with a broken woman, a woman who needed wholeness. He was going to have a one-on-one -on -one encounter to lead her to a knowledge of Jesus, to lift high the cross. The first person he actually revealed himself, hey, I'm the one. I am the Messiah. 
Anyways, and you read that story, and in John chapter 4, verse 35, you know, this is after, after the exchange with the woman at the well, and she's already gone back to the city to, to share her one-line testimony. Come meet a man that, that told me everything I ever did. The disciples have already come back with some food, and Jesus says, hey, I, I don't need that. I've got food that, that you know not of. He's satisfied. He says something very interesting in verse 35. In verse 35, to these disciples who probably wished they were somewhere else, in John chapter 4, verse 35, he says to them, don't, don't you say to yourselves that there's still four months yet before the harvest? Well, I'll tell you what, lift up your eyes because the fields are already ripe for harvest. In other words, the disciples thought that there was a more convenient time, a more convenient place to labor for the Lord. But Jesus was trying to give them a perspective of hope and potential. And no, man, there, there are souls right here, eager, thirsting for salvation, looking wistfully to heaven. Who can lead me to the wells of living water? And Jesus does that. Jesus does. There's a better time and place for you. No, no, no. Come, come, come here. There's a ripe harvest. And the whole town, the whole town comes to him. So when, when Jesus says, no, this isn't just a multitude, this isn't just a sea of faces, this is a harvest, he's communicating potential. But I would also say that when he uses that term harvest, he's also communicating hope because there's a process involved. Harvest communicates process. In other words, if these people that are right, I'm sorry, if these people are right, if this multitude of broken, dispirited people truly are right, then... Behind all the wearying circumstances, behind all the extremely painful situations they've experienced in life, there is a God who has been redemptively working a process in their lives to bring about ripeness. Do you follow that? The, the fact that Jesus says harvest, he knows there's a story behind the story. And he knows that God has been working constantly to cause all things to work together somehow, some way for their good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There's a God who is working behind the scenes to ripen them, to generate a productive end. And Jesus sees that when he looks at people, when he looks at people with all their brokenness, when he looks at you and me with all our brokenness, you know what he sees? He sees process. And there's a ripeness that God is working. He sees the Father's hand shepherding the shepherdless. Fulfilling a redemptive purpose through their journey, no matter how harassing and distressing it may have been. Oh, praise Him. Praise the Lord of the harvest. So harvest, you know, when Jesus says, hey, this harvest truly is plentiful, He's communicating potential. He's communicating process. But He's also, just as explicitly He says it, He's communicating plenty. Plenty. When he says harvest, he's not just saying, oh, there's a fruit, <laughs> a fruit. No, he's saying, there's a lot, right? Why does he say? The harvest truly is plentiful. Now, I'll be honest, I tend to shy away from just an over-concern about numbers when it comes to reaching others and blessing others. But the Lord of the harvest, he sees it. He sees a lot. He sees plenty. He sees numbers. He sees much even when we don't see much, right? Even when we don't. I, I know, I know, uh, especially here in North America where we feel as though eh, maybe there are plenty elsewhere. 
Maybe there are plenty in uh, harvest, souls to be harvested in other continents, in other parts of the world. But I tell you what, even when we see little, Jesus sees much. When I read the Gospels, I read about someone who, you know, what's that parable about the wedding feast? And he's, he's sending out invitation after invitation after, even though there's been rejection and refusal, he's, he wants his house to be full. He wants his house to be full. He's the one who is building many mansions, right? Many rooms in his father's house. Why? He's anticipating. He wants many there. And even though we may not see much, I believe Jesus' perspective is true. What is he, how does he say it? The harvest truly is plentiful. I want to trust his word over and above my perspective. How about you? I want to trust his perspective more than my senses. And what's beautiful to me is even if we may not see it, God's movement is going forward. People are responding to the gospel message. Within the Seventh-day Adventist community alone, and we're talking about worldwide, Seventh-day Adventists around the world, in 2019, about, I think it was 1.3 million people responded to the message in baptism and profession of faith. Praise God. And that has been the case actually for the last two decades. Virtually uh, every year since 2000, over one million people have been responding just within the Seventh-day Adventist community alone. Wow. In fact, since 2015, I think it was marked that every day there has been a Pentecost. <laughs> Essentially every day, over 3,000 souls have been added to the church. That's plenty. We may not see it, and you know, I know statistics can be skewed and things like that, but, but God sees plenty even when we don't. And that's a perspective of hope, right? It's a perspective of hope. And truth be told, may not always be plenty of numbers, but let's realize that there's always plenty of significance, even in the, the audience of one, right? I mean, I think about Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and in his last conscious moments, he sees a multitude, and they're stoning him. He sees a multitude, and he's praying for them. Lord, forgive them. And in that, you know, that, I mean, he's preaching, and he's preaching his heart out. He doesn't see a harvest, but there is one who responds. Yeah. <laughs> He's holding others' coats, kind of being complicit to this whole thing. But that one was a harvest that had plenty of significance. <sighs> I'm here today because of that. Praise God. Wow. This, this, this perspective of the Lord of the harvest is one that I want to adopt. And so three simple appeals here as we draw to a close. Three simple appeals. One, before getting to praying for laborers, Will you join me in praying for perspective? That we would be given the perspective of Jesus. That when we see others, we would see others as Jesus does. And really, if you're willing to pray for that, what you're praying for is a change of heart. Amen. What you're praying for is conversion. What you're praying for is the love of God to be poured abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. 
So how many of you today want to say, yeah, I want to pray for perspective? Yeah? Amen. Amen. Second of you. I told you there were three, so let me just go through that. If you're willing to pray for perspective, I, I would appeal this. I would encourage you to make this decision. Would you actually identify? Take some time later today. Maybe even now. These names are already coming to you. But identify three to five individuals in your multitude. <laughs> Whatever your multitude is, three specific people, five special persons in your sphere that God wants you to see with more compassion that God wants you to see with more hope. I know what we're talking about, yeah, appeal number one, let's pray for perspective. Let's pray to see generally with more compassion. Let's pray to see generally with more hope. But maybe, maybe there are specific people that God wants you to see with more compassion and specific people that God wants you to see with more hope. Will you actually take time to write that down, put a note in your phone and just say, yeah, you know, this week I'm going to pray specifically for these people, for, for my heart to see these people differently. Yeah? Third appeal. Third appeal. And this is one that I hope that we can all respond to. And that's this. Will you receive the one who receives you? Yeah. Will you receive Jesus today? I mean, seriously, it, you may feel distressed and dispirited. There may, may have been things happening this very week, this very morning, or over the course of several weeks and months you feel dispirited and disconnected by circumstance beyond your control, mistakes of your own choosing maybe, or sin that just, its vice grip has not let go on your heart. And if life struggles or if sin's curses have left you feeling like a sheep without a shepherd today, I want to tell you, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, <laughs> and I will never leave you nor forsake you. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I love that. John 10, verse 11. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Think of this. Think, just wrap your mind around this. The Lord, who is our shepherd, right? Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is our shepherd, and we shall not want. The Lord, who is our shepherd, became the Lamb of God, like a sheep led to the slaughter, so that by his stripes you and I could be healed. Lift up your eyes to the cross today. Look to the shepherd who became the lamb. The good shepherd has pledged himself to you and I today. So the simple question, will you receive him? Will you receive the life that he has so freely given? And you know what? I know I've kind of asked you to raise hands and stuff, but today, if you want to say, yeah, I want to receive the shepherd who became the lamb, would you just join me in standing to your feet today and say, yes, I receive the one who came to give it all. Amen. If you're, if you're watching with us online, you can stand right where you are too. I want to give you permission just to signify to heaven, yes, we're standing to our feet saying, I receive Jesus. I receive Jesus. Praise him. Praise him. Let's pray together right now. Father in heaven, you see our posture of faith and confession. Lord, there is, there is nothing in us that recommends us to heaven. And so we are looking to the shepherd who has pledged his life and laid down his life for the sheep. God, we receive you. And we thank you for the promise of John chapter 1 that says, To as many as received him, to them he gave power to become sons and daughters of God. Born not of the, of the will of man, born not of the flesh, but born of God. 
And so today, as we stand to our feet, we're receiving you, and we're receiving new life in you. Lord, part of that new life we want to receive is a new heart, to look and see others around us with different eyes. We ask, God, that you would flood our souls with the infilling of the Holy Spirit, that you would pour your love abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that when we see others, we would see precious souls to be worked for, labored for, gathered in, prized and preserved. God, please lead us to see as Jesus sees. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the Lord of the harvest. Let everyone say, amen. You may be seated.